Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview people breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion, diversity, and equity. Consciously Unbiased is a movement to a more diverse workforce. Breaking the Bias puts a voice to the Consciously Unbiased movement. Today we have Amy Doyle, SVP of Manpower Group, joining us to talk about DNI and what it means to her. Amy, let's start by having you tell us who you are, what you do, and in an ideal world, what belonging would look like to you. Uh, so I am Amy Doyle, Vice President of Strategic Client Solutions at Manpower Group Solutions. Uh, a mouthful, but uh, <laughs> really my team is focused on um, bringing new clients to our organization, um, really being focused on client excellence and growing our clients, and then particularly driving uh, intelligence and thought leadership into our organization. Um, and what does inclusion look like? I think the greatest teams or workforce is where you have diverse people, diverse thought, and um, work together as a team cohesively. Sometimes challenging, but really exciting when you can bring people with dramatically different perspectives together and drive value for our organization and our clients as well. We've found that there's a direct correlation between employees who don't feel like they can bring their true selves to work and the decrease in work performance. As a leader, how do you you encourage others to be themselves at work? Um, I think you have to do that in in several different ways. Um, I think really getting to the core of what people are passionate about and making sure that they have a job and responsibility that's focused on their passion. I think you get to see a lot of what people really are in that. Um, Really embracing diversity of thought in your culture is incredibly important and showing that you respect it is really important. And, you know, that's something my organization does extremely well is focus on you know, pulsing on a quarterly basis, how are we doing, what is your employee satisfaction, but we've also really identified what are the four key points that really drive employee engagement, and I think inclusion is one of those things, so that's something that we're constantly measuring and checking in, is our work as leaders validating, encouraging that, actually translating to the workforce or not, and and talking about that as a leadership team and a management team all the time. Do you think that's changed in the years since you started your job until now? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's changed in um, how we think, how we operate, how we look, right? I mean, it wasn't that far um, back that men were in three-piece blue suits and ties and women <laughs> were in stockings and heels and, and dresses. And I think even just the change in how people show up at work is also reflected in how we're really starting to embrace inclusion and culturally change to, yeah, diversity of thought and diversity of idea is is what drives, I think, speed to innovation. If you're innovating with people that look and think all exactly the same, you're probably going to miss really what the opportunity is to, to change the business or change the mindset or what have you. Can you share an example about the, an experience you've had in an environment that wasn't inclusive and how you've been able to feel like you belong in that and other people have come into the organization and that you've actually had to lead who haven't felt like they've belonged? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's been times where 
Um, I've seen performance management so narrow and rigorous that even if there was people speaking about wanting diversity or seeing different things, and actually, you know, I always say you get what you measure, right? <laughs> and at the end of the day, people are motivated by what they're measured on. And so, you know, there were times where the measurements were too narrow and not embracing diversity of thought or diversity in value. I mean, diversity in thought's one thing and great and really important, but, um, everyone has different skill sets. And if you can figure out who have strengths that are dramatically different than yours and maybe even uncomfortable to you and figure out a way to incorporate them into a project that you're doing, it's mm -hmm. unbelievable how those projects flourish. You know, my team is, I always talk about them being the big brains and you know, I just get to be lucky enough to lead them. But um, some of my teams is even, we have challenges with communications because how I think and how I would approach it is so dramatically different and finding where that commonality is, where we can really understand each other, it's amazing the value you can find um, in that diversity of skill, diversity of thought and everything else. Do you think that kind of diversity has made you a better leader? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I know some people are fearful of hiring people that are smarter than them or bring a different perspective because they feel like it might be difficult to manage or control <laughs> or whatever related to it. Absolutely. Everyone who works for me is way smarter than me, um, uh, has much greater ideas to the business. And my job is to find a home and a place for them to feel like they can shine and develop themselves. Um, and the more opportunity I create for them, it, it obviously intuitively translates to more opportunity for me, at least for me. Some people that's not intuitive. They think taking credit and having them be in the spotlight is most important. And I always think about it as the opposite. The more they're growing, that's just creating opportunity for me. And that brings you bigger diversity in your teams, I would imagine. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I always joke they're the island of misfit toys, <laughs> but in a good way, you know, every, it's, I do not have a cookie cutter team and that's what I absolutely love about them the most. That's good. For the first time, we have five generations in the workforce today. Yep. Yeah. Can you share the advice for creating a sense of belonging and inclusion for a team that's vastly different in age, experience, personality, abilities, everything you can imagine because yeah. of the generations. Yeah. How do you manage that? Um, I think communication is the biggest key to that and education. So, I mean, I have a great example of a story that, that I've told many times. One of my clients was an HR executive, um, hired in a new HR generalist who was, I know millennials hate to be called millennials as I have a son that is one, but was a millennial. And uh, she sent her out to go spend the day uh, with a site manager at a facility for the day. And when she came back, the HR exec said, how did the day go? She said, it was fabulous. You know, we, he walked around, he showed me everything. He told me this is somebody I should set up meetings. I was setting up meetings on the fly. It was, it was a great day. I learned so much about that site and that business. And I know that I'm going to service them really well. The HR exec then the next day called the site manager who said, uh, the day was horrible. And that the person that they sent was some girl that was on the, on her phone all day, probably texting her boyfriend and didn't pay attention to anything that he said. And the amazing thing was 
she was onboarding everything he was saying and taking action immediately. She was setting up the meetings on the fly when he said, this is somebody you should meet with. She was doing it on her phone and scheduling it as they were moving. So she was absolutely being incredibly efficient with the information and knowledge that she was learning. But he perceived it as she was texting her friends and probably her boyfriend on (laughs) on the phone all day. So it was a huge eye-opener for that exec to be like, like, wow, we really need to start on education and how to communicate to each other and how working styles may be less efficient for us, but more efficient for other people and find ways to really create an ecosystem that embraces all of that. And do you have a lot of millennials in your organization or that you that directly report to you? I don't that directly report to me, but definitely, yeah. definitely on my team. And I love them. I actually think they bring the coolest ideas, sometimes a little more radical than we may be ready to to move to, but in there is a nugget or an opportunity for us to move the needle in in what is our comfort zone as a Fortune 500 company. but managing them's different. You know, we're we're in a world of instant gratification with um, technology and information and data. I remember my mother would be like, "Well, go look it up in the encyclopedia," and you'd go over to you know those those old Encyclopedia Britannicas and try to find <laughs> your information. You have a conversation at the dinner table, and your kids have Googled in four seconds the answer to the question, and there doesn't even need to be the healthy debate about who's got the right answer at the table. Right. We instantly have it. So we've got now a generation that's used to instant gratification, instant information, and being able to have access to that. That really plays out to how you manage those people, right? An annual performance review isn't going to fly. They want to know every day how they're going. So it really changes management styles. Sitting down weekly, what worked this week, what didn't work this week, um, where do they need to be focused, where do they need to be prioritizing their actions next week, and then coming back and revisiting that is so important. Mm-hmm. We've gotten away from those formal annual performance reviews, and how do you constantly feed them? The other pieces. They're not just interested in their job. They're interested in how their job is impacting a project, the organization, our clients. And if you're not constantly communicating them to say, hey, this little great work that you did is going to have this kind of impact in the organization, Mm -hmm. you really find them to get disengaged really quickly. So you you gotta tweak how you approach it. I know we were talking earlier about how um, there isn't a lot of diversity in the sales force. Yeah. We've noticed, especially in this industry. Yeah. Tell me a little bit how you're trying to change that. Well, I think um, it, it's not a flip the switch to, uh, to create that diversity, and particularly in a sales organization and with the types of sales that we're doing. They're really elongated sales cycles. They're, you know, some of these deals take 12 to 18 months to close. And the depth and breadth of expertise that you have to be able to do that is um, something that you can't do overnight. So, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do is look at where we have younger, diverse talent in the organization who have that teachable fit, right? They don't have all the skills. They don't have 20 years of expertise, but they have the teachable fit and really start to develop them. So 
through a delivery role, they're going to understand the business. They're going to be able to learn the the business. Mm -hmm. Then how do you put them in some sort of sales enablement type role so they really start to understand sales strategies and how you approach that? And over a period of time, I think that we're going to be able to create that diverse sales workforce because it's unfortunately not on tap in the market you know my hr is like you need to hire more diverse people i'm like great bring me the resumes i'll hire i'd love to hire them today so you know i I think we need to put a different lens on it and and place some long-term bets on raw talent that we think is awesome and let's take that teachable fit and turn it into to what we need to do and then find a way so that the competition doesn't just swoop them away and your efforts are lost right but that goes back to the yeah. engagement that we were talking right, about exactly yeah. what's the one thing every one of us can do regardless of title and level to create a greater feeling of belonging in our cultures at work i think one of the most important things is to come to people where they are you know, meet them where they're at and create a sense of belonging and then lead them to where you want them to be. Um, I think trying to just demand or expect or insist or behave like people should be where you need them to be from a thought standpoint, from a development standpoint, from a performance standpoint is is going to uh, not produce the results that, that you really want. And so I think finding um, a way to come to where they're at and then find sort of a, a sense of belonging or a place of mutual understanding and then lead them to, to where you want them to be. Do you feel like you belong at work? Absolutely, yeah. And, and I feel like I belong at work because we have a group of people that are dramatically different that all still like feel like they're part of a family if that makes sense so we've I think we've done a great job of that sense of belonging I mean I've been with the organization over 15 years my peers have been over the organization I mean when you look at our teams they've all been there for 10 or 15 years and we stay because of that sense of family but there's incredible diverse thought and personalities and business approach sort of in that family. That's great. Yeah. Can we change a little to personal now? Yeah. Just move over to that yeah. and talk about your move from San Francisco to the South. Wow. How- <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I thought I was this well-exposed, you know, person that have been exposed to diverse thought and diverse people. I've lived in Europe, I've lived in New York, I've lived in California, and um, you know, I can't wait to deliver that to, to the South, you know? <laughs> and I got here and arrived and realized how limited my exposure really is. And particularly in America, mm. you know, I, I started meeting people and seeing ways of living, ways of thinking that were so dramatically different than what I was used to. And I think the biggest difference was, well, I think our core value systems at the end of the day are the same about doing the right thing on the planet and and all of those things and being kind to our neighbors. Um, The value system culturally is dramatically different 
um, coming from the West Coast, if you're not progressing, you're dying. And how you progress as an individual, as a family, as a business is really what's measured as a value. Are you moving forward in this mm-hmm. world? Are you changing things for the positive? What are you doing? Um, and in the South, it's much more about tradition. And you know, I come from a Irish Italian background, big Italian family where tradition's really important and having those family Sunday dinners and telling the family stories from years ago. But that's very different than coming from a culture, a community that is really built around tradition and values. And both of those perspectives um, bring incredibly valuable valuable things to the table and also challenging things to the table. So I've had a lot of exposure and experience to that. Do you feel like people judged you or you were judging people? A hundred percent on both sides. Yeah. You know, I mean, just jokingly, I'd go to the grocery store and I learned very quickly that if you need to run three errands uh, in North Carolina, you need to build in an extra 30 minutes because the person working there is either going to talk to you for 10 minutes or talk to the person in front of you in line for 10 minutes and you need to just build into it. And my initial reaction was, oh, these people are so inefficient and it's so irritating to me and I don't have time. This is wasted time. I need to get on with my day and my life. And now I'm so reflective of they're actually living. You know, I mean, they're actually living and experiencing the human interaction and the grocery store line where I just thought that was a chore that I needed to get off my list and that I was getting all this stuff done so that I could live. But they were actually living in the moment. And, you know, I've made a 180 on that. Last weekend, I left and ran down the street to the store and forgot my cell phone. And I came back an hour and a half later and my husband was ready to call 911. And I was like... (laughs) I talked to the woman at the counter. We talked about life. We talked about politics. We talked about families. And so it took me an hour and a half to to run a 10-minute errand. And how do you think that's changed for you having these conversations with people? Are you able to have them without the judgment on either side, too? It's like very comfortable conversations now, even though you don't have the same, say, views or have grown up the same way, et cetera. When I make the effort, yes. So when I go to my traditional Irish-Italian go-to mindset, which, you know, it is what you know and it's harder to change behaviors, no, I'm not accepted. You know, I'm the California girl that they're tolerating, I think, sometimes. Um, When, just like we were talking a few minutes ago about business, when I make the effort to find a place of belonging with them where we both feel safe and I'm not this foreign object and they're not foreign to me, then I think you can have incredibly rich conversations and that's when I learn the most. I think that's when the people I connect with learn the most and and are open to to something different than what they've known. Right, so do you feel, the empathy now that you feel or do you have more empathy for people who don't belong because now you've had this experience where you're you've been a fish out of water in some in the circumstances or you, when you see other people who aren't fitting in do you feel like oh I get that now more honestly no and I would say because I'm a Pisces I'm always pretty empathetic to that <laughs> well, I mean true. you know 
my family calls me the bleeding heart, right? Of I want to save the world and save everyone. And I will insert myself into any situation where I think somebody's being wrong and try and straighten it out, whether it's my business or not. So no, but what I have dramatically gained is respect and admiration for very different thought from me. Now there's some things for me are gonna be non-negotiable and I'm never going to, quite frankly, even necessarily respect, but there's an incredible amount of value in some of those perspectives that I had no understanding of when I moved here. It was just wrong and I didn't get it. And, and there's been a lot of lessons in that for me. Can you give me an example of something like that? Um, well, I mean, I'd go back even just to the grocery store example, yeah. right? It was just thoroughly irritating and there was no value in the inefficient behavior that was going on in the grocery store. And yet there was tremendous value there. And I think, you know, the tradition piece is something that right. I've talked about. There's such a sense of community and family and people stepping up and doing things for their neighbor in ways that I didn't necessarily, I mean, I remember my son, the first time he came to he's like people are making me nervous they're way too nice and they really mean it they really are there to help their neighbor and and hold on to the traditions that they believe pull them together as a community on the flip side when you're focused on tradition change can be hard and and a lot of change is positive and necessary and so that's where i've gained tremendous respect for the traditions that really create a sense of community but some of the traditions that I think disable community mm. are the ones that, that I still struggle with. When we were talking before, too, we had talked about how you were very black and white. Yes. Before. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was Irish Italian. There was the right and the wrong, and there was no in between. So where and, did that change for you? Um, I think some of that actually comes with age as oh. much as uh, as moving. But I think I've also learned that, um, yeah, and I've been kind of joking that life isn't in the black and white, but really in the gray. And I actually have moved from gray into technicolor because I think gray is kind of murky and there's actually a lot of colors in that that make it not black and white. But I think... Um, for me, black and white were things like right or wrong about gun control or mm. whatever. And I've learned that my life perspective and my life experience has developed my view. That doesn't make it right. It's right for me and the life I've lived. Mm -hmm. But if I've grown up in a farm, you know, 30 miles away from the closest, you know, sheriff or police officer... I'm probably going to feel differently about whether I want to have a gun or not, right? And I want to protect my family and have that sense of security. And so I've just learned a lot that the technicolor is real and appropriate and actually what we should be embracing and not just focused on our life experience and that creates the black and white because it's just not real. How do we do that? Or how do you think we, we start doing that? Because God. we're so polarized, right, now. So how do you begin that kind of empathy for people where you're able to see the other colors? I think that goes back to the whole finding a place of belonging and finding 
no matter who somebody is or what their life experience is, there's something you have in common with it. Even if it's just you're a human being, right? <laughs> we were born. I mean, there there is commonality in that. And you've got to find that first and feel like you understand each other and are connected before you can start to tackle and even have a conversation about the hard stuff. You've you've got to feel like you're from the same tribe mm-hmm. to be able to talk about anything hard. I think we've just are living in this world right now where I'm this and you're that mm-hmm. and you're wrong and I'm going to, you know, uh, behave violently or loudly or whatever for you to hear my opinion. But shouting at someone in any way, shape or form is never gonna change their heart or perspective, ever, right? right? It's yeah. about, um, finding that sense of belonging with them, and then starting the hard conversation. So that's when I personally found they expect an answer out of me on a topic or a conversation. And when I say, no, that's actually not what I think, or I I think a little bit more in this middle gray technicolor area, that you get the, oh, wow. And then they start to come to the middle as well with their thought. And then you still learn the pieces that you're still going to be far away on, but you can walk away going, okay, we heard each other. I'm looking at it a little differently than I was before. And where does that go? So I'm going to bring you all the way back to work again. Yeah. And wondering about for what you do and you're placing people, right, in, into jobs, whatever. But what I want to know is how do corporations now attract this kind of diverse talent? What, what is the one thing that you would say that they can do in order to get this like rainbow of people to want to work for them? Because now people want these really diverse workplaces, right? They want to work for people that they feel are going to value them and not worry about sexuality or color or religion or political views as well, everything. How do people attract that kind of talent? I think um, there's a lot of companies that are saying it and some companies that really want it. And so to me, it's much more about action than what you say, Um, because you can you can have an incredibly diverse slate of candidates presented. But if the behaviors within your organization are not going to create that, we talk about. You know, at Manpower Group, conscious inclusion is a big part of it, and we the steps towards conscious inclusion. And I think the first biggest piece before you even get to someone feeling included, they need to feel respected. You know, and a great example of that is um, our company just released a uh, vocabulary for the LGBTQ community to our organization, and you know, it was three or four pages of terms and definitions and it was actually interesting to me because many of the definitions were also and no it's not this it's actually this so that if we or anyone within manpower group is speaking to somebody in the lgbtq community we're not using terms that are inaccurate and offensive or make someone feel that you really don't understand them so it really starts with respect and respect is around the words we choose how we um react to someone when they come into the room and so that respect piece is first then you got to move to, okay, once they know I respect them, how then do I find that 
commonality with them and that place of belonging with them. And that's really core to uh, having a team and having a successful team is that they're respected and they're included and they're valued. Exactly. So I want to talk about women a little just because it's a big topic for me. Yeah. <laughs> and there's not a lot of women in, in executive positions. You're yeah. one of very few. Yeah. It's just the way it is. So how do you think, or have you gotten where you are? How, how do you think this trajectory has happened for you? Apart from the idea that manpower just seems to be very, very, very welcoming to women. Yes. From my perspective. Yeah. But for you, how did that change? And have you thought about it even? Or is it just one of those things that you're like, well, it just kind of happened? Because... <laughs> no, I, I think about it all the time. And so it's funny because Manpower Group very specifically is very focused on women's initiatives and we do training and we do development for our women and and very focused, you know, we have organizations that are to support women's, to support the LGBTQ community, to uh, support the black community in our organization as well as external Mm -hmm. communities. But what we... um, I believe I have been successful because those weren't priorities for me. This can be very controversial for you. Um, I, um, I, I've never hired someone because they were a woman, and I have so many direct reports that are women. I'm about best talent, period. And I'm not going to promote a woman because she's less than that man. Now, I understand that that gets very complex and has she had the right exposure and all the Mm -hmm. opportunity and how do you bridge those gaps? But to me, it's about, are you bright? Can you do the job? If there's shortcomings, we're gonna figure it out, but are you the brightest, best person to do the job um, with your development? And um, yeah, sometimes I've had trouble with the female initiatives within the organization. Talking about that. Well, you know, um, there's some assumptions around women in work. Like women are don't like to call out their successes. They're insecure or sometimes undervalue themselves. And so we've been provided a lot of training around how to really recognize your value and then how to be able to communicate your value in the organization Mm -hmm. and honestly I have people directly who work for me on my team that that has been incredibly beneficial for but I'm not cut from that cloth I've never been insecure about sharing my opinion letting people know what I think and actually in some ways I think that that's been made me successful is I've been fearless because I wasn't worried about you know, what somebody was going to think of me or whether I had the right to be at that table, you know, I, why shouldn't I be at that table? I had no problem being at that table and no problem offering my opinion and was pretty fearless about the implications or ramifications of that. I think also too, I think women are afraid to fail, that we're held to sometimes a different standard. So we don't have that fearlessness in us, in yeah. us. Yeah. Right. And so when women, when you ask somebody who's really has succeeded, they're fearless. You know, they're brave. Yes. In a way, right. They want to be brave. And yeah. They, and they do things. Because yes. They're not insecure. Or I don't know what it is. 
but there is yeah. some bravery in just asking for what what you should have. Yes, <laughs> right? yes, exactly, way. exactly. How do you, as a role model, because you're there and that, and you've you've led that way, I assume. Right? Yes, you're leading from yeah. bravery. How do you do that for the other women that you're leading now? How do you share that? Again, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, and I would actually extend it beyond the women who work for me and to the men as well, right? Everybody's wired very differently, Mm -hmm. and getting the best out of anyone is dramatically different, Mm -hmm. you know? And so you've got to understand, you know, I have some people on my team who we jokingly have a mental health check. You know, and I call and I'm like, this is your mental health check, right? For the week, how's everything going? Um, For others, it's just really a conversation of, you know, I, I just had this conversation with a woman who works for me and I was sharing some direction of how we should approach a situation a little differently. And she immediately internalized it to, I can't do my job. And I'm like, well, why can't you do my job? Well, if this is the thing that we're trying to tackle, clearly everything else I have done wasn't doing my job and it's about me not doing my job and what's being asked of there is not a strength of mine and you know my feedback was why does it have to be a strength of yours you have a team you have that strength in your team as a leader enable that strength through other people on your team to achieve your goal and I think a lot of the time it's just about reframing Reframing the conversation, reframing the project for each person, male or female, Mm -hmm. in a way that's going to get them focused on where you need them to be. Right. Have you had any major failures at work that have shaped the way you've um, shaped your career in any way or things, even personally, anything that you would say has shaped you? Because my failures have been my biggest the best things that have ever happened to me. <laughs> the things that have changed my life and I've been like, oh, okay. I can move on to something else. So that's really, we, we have done a lot of personality assessments within our organization. Like I've been assessed upside down and sideways 42 times. And the one thing that probably actually feeds into my success is that I'm incredibly, incredibly resilient by nature. And I think with my very high resiliency, I don't see failures as failures. So when you ask me that question, I'm like, I can't really think of a failure. <laughs> and the funniest thing is I've been married and divorced and remarried and I've had different jobs yeah, yeah. and yeah. projects haven't always turned out the way they should if I got really analytical, but I don't I don't think my brain processes it as a failure. It's just uh, a bleep. A bleep, a bleep, change direct, change course and keep going, you know? Well, that's resilience, right? Yeah. So you've got resilience. Yeah. But so I do, so with that, and, and maybe there's some uh, introspection that's lost in that resiliency, right? Could be. I don't know. Um, because I don't that's look back therapist. as, yeah, I, not, not for our podcast today, but that's, but that's really something that I would say, um, my resiliency has stopped me from thinking as anything as a failure. That's interesting. Just though. a stepstone. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's probably good though, because women, that's another hurdle women have to get to executive, um, positions 
when they've done research on that. Yeah. Good and bad, right? I oh, mean, yeah, with totally. with everything, there's a there's a yeah. tremendous down, you know. And that's the one thing I always talk to my team is your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. Oh, for sure. At all times, right? So how do you how do you, how do you manage and not always think of it as a strength, but understand its detriment to you as well? Right. Yeah. So now you're a southerner. Yes. <laughs> I am. It's yourself? funny. <laughs> uh, I don't think I don't. I, I, I think I'm a woman with no land. Is actually it. Um, I don't think of myself as a southerner, but when I go back to the West Coast, it's completely foreign to me. And how I am how like, you feel there now? I am like, I would never live here again. You know, it's really funny because my husband, born and raised in the South, lived his whole time in the South. He's like, I'll, I'll move to the West Coast <laughs> if you wanted to. And I'm like, why would we want to do that? There's so much traffic. People are rude. It's, there's, I don't go home anymore and feel like it's home. That's yeah. funny though, right? Yeah. From when you came. Do you Very feel much. like you don't belong there now? No. I just don't, I don't identify it as home anymore. But could that be because of Michael? Yeah, home is family. Yeah. I mean, home is where, to me, home is about relationships and not about location. But when I first moved here, I felt like I had moved away from home. Right. Um, now that doesn't feel like home because that's not where that's not where my relationship. I mean, I have family and relationships there, but that's not where my relationship is. That's where home is. Do you feel where you live in the South though is segregated in a way still? <coughs> and very much is so. that uncomfortable for you? Very uncomfortable for me, um, and very much so. And you know, look, I, I I I'm new to the South, so I have other than what I've learned in history books I have very little knowledge or experience to understand why that segregation still lives and breathes today but it really does and how I am treated how I see white people treat black people how black people react even to me personally is always takes me aback still do you think um, there's so much talk now about white privilege? Yeah. What do you think about how do you, how does that affect you? In the idea, do you think that? Um, do you think now? Oh, I I want to change things, especially being in the South where things are more segregated. So and understand the history. So white privilege is alive and well, regardless of how you define it. You know, it just have walk being walked into a room and know that people aren't reacting to me just based on how I look mm. is is privilege right, <laughs> right. I mean it's yes. just that simple so you can get all into complex socioeconomic and all of those kinds of things or what your background was um, but I have been, and so, and I've always, I, I am so much more aware of my white privilege than I was before. Um, and I also very intentionally try whenever I meet someone who I feel might react to me as white privilege to meet them where they are, break down those barriers and show that maybe expectations of how they think I might behave or act is not who I am and doesn't define everyone 
you know. So um, prejudice, prejudging is so real and I experience it all the time and try to break that down and it's so amazing when you do you know (laughs) like I've 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 interacted with people who I walk you know and they're like she's white privilege and you know walk away having built a friendship that they never expected they didn't want to have to interact with me and literally that that's the curious thing to me in the segregation here is it goes both ways mm. black people don't want to interact with the white people as much as the white people don't want to act interact with the black people now that doesn't bring into the socioeconomic dynamics and all of the lack of equality in that so i'm not in my thoughts trying to project that it's a problem on both sides and just everybody needs to change the way they act because it's so much more complex than that. And that's one of the interesting things that I really recognize is that things like racism or any particular topic are going to be hard to change when people value tradition because until you can get people to embrace change of any kind, Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard to then tackle specific topics like racism, like innovation, like anything. So, um, yeah, I try to just in every small interaction in the grocery store, at a high school graduation, at whatever event I've experienced people instantly react to, you're not one of me, you know, I'm going to keep my distance from you. Try try to break down those barriers. Good. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, Amy.